Good afternoon, church. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 22. You can turn there in your Bibles, and when you have it, you can just give me a hearty amen. Those are pretty hearty. I'm going to read uh, the passage that we'll be looking at this afternoon, and then I'm going to ask the Lord to bless his word. This is the word of the Lord. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treating them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to, in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. Let's pray. Father, we come to sit under your word, and we ask that you would, by your spirit, show Christ to us, make our hearts glad, uh, convict us, bring us to rejoicing in the Son. Would you call those that don't know you to salvation? And would you remind those that are already in Christ who it is and what it is they already have in him? I ask that you would do this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, maybe you remember this story. Uh, it, it was for a little minute all over the news. Uh, in November 2009, the White House held a state dinner, and the state dinner was in honor of the Indian Prime Minister. Uh, lots of people were there, lots of famous uh, celebrities, lots of politicians were there, and Michelle and Tariq Salahi were there too, except they actually were not invited to the party. Uh, they crashed the party. Uh, it, it, it's a White House party. It's the White House. It's like one of the most secure buildings, I don't know, in the world. And, and this couple bluffed their way through two security checkpoints. One of them, you needed photo ID to, to, to get past. 
And they took pictures with the president. They were taking pictures with, with, with President Obama and the, and the vice president, president at that time, President Biden. And, and, and they were in the party. And in an article from the Washington Post, it says that they were allowed to enter because they looked the part. And that they were able to step through, um, the, the, the article calls it a cultural blind spot. One anonymous source from inside the White House said the Salahis were allowed by an officer who apparently was persuaded by the couple's manner and insistence, as well as the pressure of keeping lines moving on a rainy evening. And they fooled everyone and they crashed a very prestigious party. Well, Jesus tells the parable of a party, a wedding feast that many are invited to. But as we'll see, uh, no one can actually crash this party and get away with it. All who are at this feast must be verified. They must pass all the checkpoints and they're thorough checkpoints. And, and by the end of our time, I do hope we see that it's only those who come to God as He requires as he calls us to come to him, it's only those who come that way who are admitted into his presence. And for God's people, this is actually good news. And for those that reject him, it is a warning. Uh, a little context. We've been out of Matthew for, for several weeks and now we're back in the book of Matthew. And if you remember, Jesus has... He's already entered Jerusalem and the, the, the scribes and Pharisees are questioning him and he, and he talks to them in parables. And this is the third, of the, the, the third of the three that he's going to speak to them in. And this parable of our text today is aimed directly at the religious leaders. There's a similar sounding parable in Luke. But the big difference is that that parable is about a man who invites people uh, to a party and they make excuses. This parable is about a king who invites people to a wedding feast. Remember now that the parables are stories with symbolic meaning. This symbolic meaning um, provides this added benefit. These parables have this added benefit of sort of preaching themselves. They have elements that really stick out to help you understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. And there's some really, there's some really crazy um, elements in, in our story today. There's a royal invitation that's rejected. There's messengers who are killed uh, and, and mistreated. And, the, and then the king responds by burning down the city. Uh, it, there's a lot here. And, and if you read it, it's, it is really kind of obvious what Jesus is talking about. It's not terribly difficult to understand. It clearly speaks about God, the King, and His invitation of the Gospel and His Son Christ. And He sends servants. These would, this would have been the early preachers of the Gospel and even the prophets. Uh, he sends them uh, to, to, to not just His own people, but in the New Testament we see they're sent to the Gentiles and they reject Him. Many reject Him. This points to the way that men and women choose to arrogantly and foolishly ignore the invitation of the gospel. We also see a picture of hell towards the end of uh, the parable here where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are common symbols of God's judgment. And, and that is the due penalty for rejecting God and rejecting the good news of Christ. The message of the parable is plain and simple, which is the point of telling a parable. 
Jesus introduces this parable by telling his listeners that they are to compare it to the kingdom of heaven, to what's happening, uh, to, to prepare what's happening in, in, in their day and age, to, and this parable, to the kingdom of heaven. And D.A. Carson points out that this phrase, when you tightly translate it, it means the kingdom of heaven has become like a king. In other words, what's being described is already happening. Invitations have gone out. John the Baptist came and preached. People from all walks of life were following Jesus. What's, what's being proclaimed here is, is already happening. We see this in John 1. Jesus, speaking of Christ, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so the point of the parable is, is, is clear. But it's worth spending time in it a bit more closely to examine it because God does have a word, as he always does, for us here now. Uh, it's a short parable. There's a king, there's a king's son, there's invited guests, there's those who reject the invitation, there's new invited guests, there's this strange man at the end who's not wearing something he's supposed to be wearing. And to walk us through this parable, I'm just going to do this in three simple points. If you take notes, you can write them down. It's actually just three words. Point number one, invited. Point number two, rejected. Point number three, accepted. Point number one, invited. Point number two, rejected. Point number three, accepted. Here's point number one. People are invited. Jesus says that we can compare the kingdom of heaven to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and he sends out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Now understand that wedding feasts or banquets in Jesus' day were not like we might think of them. Mealtimes and just celebrations, they were, uh, they were that, but this event is also packed with meaning. Uh, banquets and, and wedding feasts were social indicators for who was in and who was out in society. Who was in and who was out in political circles. It's kind of like getting an invitation to the Oscars or, or, or the Grammys and getting a chance to walk the red carpet. You, you, you must have made it if you've made it there. right? You must be in. And even if other people don't, they don't really know who you are. If you're there, you must have done something Good to, to get there. Someone must know you. You must have gotten an in with somebody that's really important. And how close you got to sit to the host at one of these banquets was important. The amount of food was important. The quality of food was important. This all indicated a status. When I was, um, I can't remember if it was middle school or high school, um, we got to go on this trip to Hershey Hotel. Anybody been to the Hershey Hotel? No, one person, okay. Two people, okay. Well, it, there's this really big dining room in, in, in the Hershey Hotel, and, and they, they took us there for, for, for etiquette training, okay? And, and, and one of the things I noticed, this, this is where I learned, okay, that the more utensils that you have surrounding the plate, that was an indicator of how expensive or how fancy the dinner was. So if you are invited to a party with one fork, knife, and spoon, uh, it's... That's an okay party. But if you are invited to a party with four forks of varying shapes and sizes, with three spoons, with several knives, you, 
you've really made it. You're at an important party. And even if you don't know how to use all those things and, and what they're for, you've made it. You've accomplished something. And this invitation to this wedding feast is an honor. It's significant. Why? Because it's from a king. Not only that, but the wedding feast is for the king's son. It's a royal celebration. It's a feast in celebration of the king's son. Not everybody is getting invites to the royal son's wedding. The invitation is an honor. And so who wouldn't say yes? Not only that, but the king says, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Now, now, dinner in this instance is actually uh, probably culturally more like breakfast. And what that means is that it would be the first meal of a very long festival or celebration. It would go on for quite some time. And the king says, I have everything covered for this get together. He is displaying his kingliness by providing everything that's needed for the feast. The guests, they don't even have to buy anything off the registry when they come to this party. They don't have to click on the, the website and buy a toaster. Right? We got every, everything you need has been provided. All the invitees have to do is come and attend. What a supreme and prime invitation. Yeah. And, and so to reject it is supremely insulting. Not only that, but consider who's giving the invitation again. It's a king. An invitation from a king is not just an invitation, it's a command. We see this in the text. Now we might breeze past it, but if you read it for what it is, it's a command. Come to the wedding feast. That's a direct, that's an imperative, that's not a suggestion. It's not a, you know, if you're in the neighborhood, you know, if you want to stop by, we're having a little get together, but if you don't want to come by, you know, no trouble, don't worry about it, we'll see you next time. Come to the wedding feast. To reject the king is not just royally rude. You understand? It's downright rebellious. It's rebellious. And so we see Jesus shining a light on this. Consider his audience now. He's shining a light on the fact that God has foretold the coming of the coming of his kingdom in Old Testament prophecy. And God is now inviting Israel and these religious leaders included in that to celebrate the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the son. John the Baptist was indeed a voice crying out in the desert. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a command. Repent. And Jesus commands the same in Matthew 4, 17. This is not lost on the Pharisees. They know exactly who this is about. And the response of the people who were invited is no. We do not accept your invitation. They have rejected the son. Their long expected king and redeemer. Even those who claim to be God's people have rejected him. 
These are the same people that Matthew tells Jesus uh, tells us that Jesus calls a faithless and faithless and, and twisted generation. How how long he says am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And so Jesus is pointing the finger directly at these religious leaders and saying, God has offered you an invitation to come, and you've said no. And Friend, unbeliever, if you are not a Christian, a call to come to Christ is not merely a humble invitation. It is a command. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's made provision for all the wrath and justice our sin requires in crushing his son on the cross for you. And and your creator calls you to come to him in repentance so that you might receive forgiveness. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And so Christ invites you to come to him. And to refuse his invitation is to your own destruction. If you are not in Christ, this is a call to turn from your sins. And don't you see God's patience here in the parable? And understand, okay, they didn't have mail or email or text messaging or all the different ways that we communicate now. They, they had couriers, they had servants. So if the king had a message and an invitation that went out, he would send his couriers once and because there's, you know, they just think about time differently. Like we keep calendars and we're very meticulous with where we're going and what we're doing. And, and they're not really waiting. or They're not keeping dates like that. And so the way it would work was a king would send out an invitation. The crew would go out. There's going to be a party. The king's inviting you. And then... They would know to come to the party because the couriers would come back and say, all right, it's party time, let's go. And everybody would get up and they would go. And so what's understood here is that they've already gone out twice. So this is actually a three-time rejected invitation. He sends them three times. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. We might say, we might say, if this were happening in our day, well, they didn't come. Maybe they got, maybe the invitation got lost. I know the mail's been really slow, right? Maybe the invitation got lost in the mail. It was an accident, right? They wouldn't do this on purpose. They wouldn't reject an invitation from the king, but they would. And the king is patient and he gives them another opportunity. Come. And they say, No. So let's just consider for a moment the nature of this rejection to really get why they refuse the king. Because we would go, why would you refuse that? Well, there's a reason for that, which leads to our second point, rejected. The second, much more shocking rejection reveals what's underneath it. The first rejection is this, just that uh, they, they did not come. The second rejection says, but they paid no attention. They ignored the the invite and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So you got two groups of people here. Two kinds of open and willful rejection. The first, they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. The king's command is ignored for what? For the work of their hands and the pursuit of money. 
In Luke 14, these are spelled out, even, even though most uh, commentators would say it's actually a different story. Um, one man says, I, gets an invitation, says, I bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Then another, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another says, I married a wife, therefore I cannot come. And these are excuses. The farm, the business, they're excuses that have no that, 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 that have no, uh, no, no clear understanding of what it is that they are rejecting. These are excuses that point to a love of things and the world rather than a love for the creator of all things, rather than a love for the king. But, but do you notice? It's very nice. It's very nice. No one's dumb enough to say, I'm not coming to your party. Don't you see I'm busy here? I got better things to do. It's, just, it's a very civil, nice way of rejecting the king. Thank you for the invite. I just can't right now. You've got some business to attend to. But that is not how the king sees it. Spurgeon tells this story of a wealthy ship owner who was visited by a godly man, a Christian. And the Christian says to him, well, sir, what is the state of your soul? And the ship owner replies, soul, I have no time to take care of my soul. I have enough to do just taking care of my ships. Spurgeon says, but he was not too busy to die, which he did a week later. And to the ship owner, the invited guests, in this parable, they reject the king's invitation because they love their security and their money and their treasure more than they love the king. Consider the foolishness and irony here, if you will, for a minute. It's the king's invitation, which if we can imagine for a moment, means it's sent to people who live in the king's land. Which means that all that they love and possess and go, you know, i got, got to get back to that. That already belongs to the king. It already belongs to him. And so the things they reject the king for are the king's. Don't you see how senseless this is? These are not, these are not wise reasons to reject the king. It's just that they love the world too much. Samuel Rutherford says this, see that you buy the field where the pearl is. Sell all and make a purchase of salvation. Do not think it easy, for it is a steep ascent to eternal glory. Listen to this. Many are lying dead by the way who were slain with security. So the other invited guests see this civil yet ridiculous rejection for security and they're not so well-mannered in their rejection but they reveal really what's really behind this three times rejected invitation of the king says the rest it's the second group of people seized his servants treated them shamefully and killed them you see their persistent rejection of the king is because they hate the king and they've had enough of his invitations. They mistreat and kill the servants because they hate the king and they hate the king's son. And they don't want to celebrate anything that has to do with the king and his son. Not only that, but they will eliminate anything that continues to threaten what they actually love and destroy whatever tries to call them away from their idols. 
This is hatred and rebellion on display here. We know this because this is what Stephen pronounces uh, right before he's killed in Acts 7. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He sent this to the religious leaders and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law is delivered by angels and do not keep it. And then they stoned him. John tells us what's going on as the symbolism of the parable plays out in the real world. John 3, 19 and 21 through 21. And this is the judgment. NIV says this is the verdict. This is what's going on here. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so the reason people reject Christ is the same reason that they've always rejected Christ. We love sin more than we love God. All excuses we give for rejection only reveal that we, in fact, hate him. Many people think their reasons for rejecting Christ are, are good enough. You may have unbelieving family members or friends, and they, I just don't have time for that right now. I think I'm doing, ju- I think I'm doing just fine. Many, many reasons that people give for rejecting Christ seem reasonable, but the French mathematician, 17th century French mathematician Blaise Pascal says this, he says, the heart has its reasons, which reason does not know. Because as we see from the parable, it's actually dangerous. It's unreasonable. It's dangerous to reject the king's invitation and belittle his patience. And we know this because verse 7 says the king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. You see, the murder of the king is an act of war. And the king sends troops to dish out vengeance. This echoes Isaiah 5. It's actually what Jesus uses as his, if you want to call it, sermon text for all the parables he's telling in Matthew 21. This is where uh, Israel is compared to a vineyard that bears no fruit and he tears up the vineyard and lets the vines dry out and he, he burns them. He says it plainly in Isaiah 5, 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Is that clear for you? The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And later on in the same chapter, it says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of, in the, midst of the streets. For all this... His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Their sin, their rejection, is an act of violence against the king. That's just what our sin is. It's an act of war against a holy God. And God responds to it in vengeance and punishment. And this is the very thing that Jesus Christ took on for sinners at the cross. The vengeance of God for sin. And it doesn't matter if you reject him politely. 
It doesn't matter if you reject him violently. You reject him to your own undoing. You don't have to kill preachers and prophets. You, you just have to reject him. And Jesus says, those who rejected the invitation were not worthy, which implies that there's, some, there's a group of people who are, who are worthy, who are accepted, which leads us to our third point, accepted. Look at verses 9 through 10. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the banquet is going to continue. The the banquet is is not going to be canceled. It's going to continue, this time with new invited guests from the road, the street corners, the ones who would never imagine getting a seat at the king's table. Notice, those who, isn't it interesting? Those who refuse have stuff to go back to. I got some stuff I got to go back to. And the people in the streets, there's no mention of stuff that they have to go back to. There's no social status that they have. These are the people who get the invitation in the mail and they go, so what's the catch here? Like, do I have to pay or like, is this, is there some, some membership thing that you're not telling me about? What's the catch? This is a joke, right? You can follow the symbolism. This is everyone who does not deserve a place at God's eternal kingdom celebration. Now, granted, we all don't deserve a place at the king's table. But Jesus is highlighting here in the face of the Pharisees, the ones who go, "I, I deserve that place. Nobody deserves that place. These are the flawed Israelites, right? The ones who are unworthy of of God, not not the religious leaders who, who think they are. What did Jesus say? I've, I didn't come for the people who, are, who don't think they're sick. I came for the sick. These are the ordinary. These are the nobodies, right? These are the people who seem to have no direct relationship to the king. So, so why are you here? Like, are you a cousin or like, do you, did, did you, were you there? Like, did you help him? Did you teach him when he was a kid? Like, how, how did you get in here? I have no, I have no idea. I have no idea why I'm here. Have no idea. The symbolism is clear. These are the Gentiles. These are the shame. These are the despised of society. These are people of all the nations. People who once seemed far removed from the kingdom and who the king brings near. And this, is, this has been God's plan all along. Isaiah 52, the Lord has barred his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of Our God. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So this God of Israel, our God, is being shared with all the nations. Luke 2, 27-32, this is what Simeon saw when Jesus is brought into the temple. It says, and he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms 
and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And listen to Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Because you thrust it aside, that's what makes you unworthy of eternal life. He says, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so no, the king's not canceling the feast here. He's not going to cancel the banquet. He will not be dishonored by those who reject him. He maintains his honor by pouring out his judgment on those who reject him. And he will honor the son. The text says the wedding hall is filled with guests, good and bad. In other words, the king's invitation is unconditional. Everyone is invited. Just come. He's honored to have these guests because they are there to honor the son. And of course you have no right to be there. Of course there's no explanation for why you got that in the mail. Of course there's no reason, any good reason why you would be sitting at the table with the king. But this is the king's banquet. And in his grace and in his mercy and in his kindness, he says, everyone, just just come. This is an unlikely banquet here. This is a banquet with the least of these. In honor of the son, it's a banquet of weakness. You see the strength that people reject him. I got stuff to do. I got it. I got I'm pretty I'm pretty strong and put together. I got things to do. This is people laying in the street. Go get them. This is people with no hope and without God in the world. And he says, go get them. This is a banquet of of weakness. And it's a picture of the invitation that we have in the gospel. And it testifies to God's effectual call of all who come to him. What does Jesus say in John 6? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So what, I mean, what words by Jesus? So just be reminded now, Christian, if you are in Christ, it's because he called you. When you came to him, it's because he called you. Not that you love God, but that he first loved us, right? You came because he called you. You say you are a guest of the king and God will never cast you out. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block, that's what's happening here. This is the stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You came to Christ because he called you and you came as evidence of what the power of the gospel does. 
Romans 9, 11, Though they were not yet born and had done neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. If you are in Christ, it is because He called you. He spoke into darkness and He called you. And it's by the power and influence of the Spirit that you said, I accept that invitation. I will come to the banquets. I mean, just... Just think about that. I mean, if you're having a bad week, if you're discouraged, if you're turned inward, if, you, if your heart is, 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 is discouraged that you feel far from Jesus, even that is the Spirit giving you concern. It's, it's evidence when Jesus says, you came to me, I'm not going to cast you out. I won't cast you out. He's the one who called you. He's the one who brought you. He's the one who keeps you. And we think the story would end there, right? We think the story would end. That's a great ending. Everybody at the table. Yes! And they all ate happily ever after. Excellent parable, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, God. And Luke's actually stops there. But in Matthew's, Jesus doesn't end there. There's this little twist at the end. Someone is actually cast out. Look at verses 11 through 14. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into, out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So what's happening here? There is a guest who's wandered into the banquet hall. He's passed the security checkpoints for some reason, and he's not properly dressed. It's a dress code issue. So sometimes, now I've never been to a place like this. I just know this because I know people that have been to places like this, and they tell me, this is what happens when you go to a fancy restaurant. Sometimes there's a dress code, okay? And, and, and if you're a man, you have to wear a jacket. And they say, do you have a jacket, sir? And you go, clearly I do not. And they give you a jacket. They will. They don't like a turn away business, right? Here, here's a jacket. Come eat. This man is at the wedding with no jacket. Maybe he's there not properly dressed because he thinks, listen, okay, like you, I've been through a lot in my life. Okay, you caught, you came and you invited me. I was laying on the side of the road. I was mistreated. I was living in squalor. I had a rough upbringing. I've gone through enough mistreatment. I've earned the right to sit here and and wear whatever I want to wear. Please accept me in what I'm wearing. I've been through enough. It doesn't say. It's possible. Maybe he's there not properly dressed because he thinks, okay, okay. Listen, king, thank you. I know there's a dress code, but you're a fair king, right? You're a fair king. I've worked hard for these clothes. I'm a good person. And and what I have on is evidence that I'm good. I've really, you know, these aren't cheap clothes. I've paid good money for them. I worked, I've I've never lied, cheated, or stolen. You know, I I feel good in in what I'm wearing. I feel you on the dress code. Like, I I feel you, but this is good, right? This This is good enough, what I have on. The text doesn't say, I'm not, I'm not sure, but... It's also possible maybe he's there not properly dressed because he thinks to himself, I'm going to do a wedding. I'm going to dress better than the bride and the groom. How can you not like what I have on? How can you not like what I brought? Look what I'm wearing. 
And the king addresses him, interestingly, as a friend, but then he deals with him as a fool, as an enemy. How did you get in here, friend? How did you get in here without a wedding garment? This is my son's wedding. You're not wearing a wedding garment? I told you when I set out the invitation, everything was ready. Everything is here. I've provided you with what you need to wear here at the wedding. You don't want to wear it. This guest is intentionally, on purpose, wearing his best and refusing the garment of the king. This is not a case of, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know, I didn't know there was a dress code. Sorry. This is willful defiance. Even though he's made it a bit further past some of the checkpoints and the other men who openly rejected the invitation, he's just as guilty. And when the king approaches him, what does it say? He was speechless. How'd you get in here? Like that. No answer. What do we say before the face of God? When all we have to show for ourselves is our sin and our very best. What do we say? You say nothing. Psalm 63, 11, But the king shall rejoice in God. The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And this man refusing to celebrate in what the king has provided is cast out. He's an imposter. Bind him hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a description of divine judgment. And so to remain at the table, you must be properly clothed. And these wedding garments point to the faith that believers have in the righteousness of Christ that clothes them. God has provided His Son, Christ, the Bridegroom. And you have a seat around the table and a place at the heavenly feast because you say, all I have is Christ. So when the king comes up to you and says, how did you get in here? And you say, I'm wearing him. Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. There's no distinction. They're all wearing the wedding garment. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You have a seat at the table because you've placed your faith in Christ and you are covered in His righteousness and you're seeking to obey the Son. And it's because He called you. Kids, I know you've been hanging for a little while and I'm just now getting to you. Kids, you get to heaven not by being good. You get to heaven by trusting in Jesus, the one who is perfectly good. Because of your sin, because of our sin, none of us is good enough for God to accept us just like we are. But when you trust in Jesus, he covers you in 
the, the goodness and righteousness of Christ, Sage. And when you get to glory, if you've trusted him, he says, why should, you, why should you get to come and eat with me? And you say, because I've placed my faith in Jesus. There's this term that floats around the professional world, usually in very high achieving and competitive environments. It's called imposter syndrome. I just learned about this a few years ago. Anybody familiar with imposter syndrome? Yeah, there's all the hints, okay? And it is this sense of feeling like a fraud, like you are incompetent, like you're an incompetent employee, like you don't belong, like someone's going to find you out one day, right? And, and really, we can feel this anywhere, not just if we work in a high-stress job. You can feel this as a spouse. You can feel this as a parent. You can feel this as a pastor. And I think Jesus has something to say about Real imposter syndrome in this parable. The idea of what it means to not belong. The, the uninvited guest who is coming in his own royalty is rejected. He's the actual imposter. And yet he doesn't think he is. He doesn't even act like it. And the ones from outside, the ones who might feel like they don't belong, they actually remain at the table. The ones who might, might feel like, I'm not, I don't think I'm supposed to be. They get to stay. Why? Because they're all wearing clothes that were provided by the king and thus they are accepted. They eat and celebrate freely with not a concern about what anyone is wearing because everyone is wearing the king's clothes and that's what matters most. And so let me just remind you, if you are in Christ, what he says about you is what matters most. Imposter syndrome says, come in your own righteousness and your very best and maybe we'll like you. Maybe you do a good job today. Maybe you feel good at the end of the day. Maybe you don't. And the gospel speaks a better word. What you fear you will be rejected for, Jesus has covered in the royal garments of his righteousness. What you fear you do not have, Jesus has provided. What you fear may need to be prepared. I got to do a little work here and get ready for this party. He has already been preparing and has prepared according to his royal standards. What you fear will be exposed. What you fear, they're going to gonna, they're gonna find out sooner or later. God already sees. He's paid for it. And you're welcomed at his table. There are no imposters at the king's table because all are in Christ. You're free. Providence brought you to the table, saying, not your will, not your works. God went out to the main roads of the world to get you, to call you in and clothe you. And you are of more value, he says, than the birds and the lilies of the field. God's kingdom is full of people who have nothing to boast in but Christ alone. This is freeing. And it's also an assault on your pride because it causes you, you have to lay your pride down. It changes how we come to God. We, we can't come in our own righteousness because that would be an insult to His kindness. It changes how we deal with one another at the, the dinner party. It changes how we, who we focus most on at the dinner party. What's she wearing? What's he saying? What you, we're not, that's not who the dinner party's for. It's for the sun. It changes the topic of conversation at the dinner party. His table is full of imposters, made saints, covered in the blood of the Lamb. His table is full of people who, by faith, have trusted in the Son and who are His joyful, obedient servants. 
Zechariah 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Revelation 7. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, So you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And we know this parable that Jesus is telling points to the supper to end all suppers. The dinner party to end all dinner parties. Listen to Revelation 19. Six through eight. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But by this time in Revelation, there's no more invitations. Although many on this side of eternity are called, Jesus is few are chosen. We know who those uh, who are. We know those who are supposed to be at the wedding feast because they profess faith in the Son, and this is illustrated by their life devoted to the King. And Jesus' final words in this story capture the lesson of the parable: people are drawn to Christ. Because the king draws them and they trust in him by faith. And some people come for all sorts of other reasons. But those who belong are those who are clothed, those who've been transformed, those who've turned from their sin, trusted Christ by faith and in faith follow him in obedience. So while the unprepared are to be warned, Come to Christ. Friend, let me remind you again as we close that if you are in Christ, you are prepared for the banquet. You are a friend of the king. You have a seat at the table. Keep putting him on. What does Paul say? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And sometimes its desires are to get you to feel like I don't belong to God today. Put on Christ. Keep putting on Christ. Every day your flesh, it wants to glory in itself, in its own clothes, even if they're raggedy clothes. My clothes are raggedy today. They're not raggedy. You're clothed in Christ. Put on, keep putting him on. Put him on in prayer. Okay? Trust Him in your hard times. Run to Him in temptation. Sing to Him when you're low. Sing of His righteousness that covers you. Encourage one another in Him. Obey Him, saints. You are called, you are chosen to keep putting on Jesus until He returns and we are with Him perfectly forever. Keep putting on Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father. We could go for another three hours and we would never get to the end of the glory that is in your word. I pray that you would cause the preaching of your word to bear much fruit for your glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Amen, church.